Our moderator today is uh, moderator today is Metropolitan Peace Initiatives Executive Director Vaughn Bryant. And Vaughn's going to open with a few remarks and uh, and I think a video, right? Yep. All right. Welcome to City Club. Appreciate it. Look forward to the discussion. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. Uh, and thank you for the, to the City Club for uh, having us here today. I became a member, I think, in like 2011, so it's uh, kind of full still circle. Active, <laughs> it is still active. It is still active. Um, so it's good to be here to be able to speak in front of you guys today. Um, you know, thank you for convening this important conversation, um, and thank you to all of you, uh, our panelists, for everything you do to keep our city safe. Good afternoon and welcome to the Metropolitan Peace Initiative's special panel discussion on community violence intervention, also known as CVI. I'm Vaughn Bryant, Executive Director of Metropolitan Peace Initiatives, also known as MPI, and I will be serving as your moderator this afternoon. I'd like to begin by telling you a little bit about MPI and our coalition of community-based organizations known as Communities Partner for Peace or CP4P, Lots, a lot of acronyms. So MPI is a division of Metropolitan Family Services which coordinates, supports, and sustains a cross-agency infrastructure made up of local community-based organizations, citywide partners who deliver a comprehensive set of services to help heal our communities at most at highest risk of gun violence. And our core services include behavioral health, workforce readiness, legal aid, mm -hmm. uh, and then we also do organizational development, which is basically capacity building for the local organizations that we support. And then we also administer the Metropolitan Peace Academy, uh, which is our highly acclaimed multidisciplinary training platform designed to professionalize and strengthen the field of street outreach and community violence prevention. MPI was created to support uh, Communities Partner for Peace, a coalition of 13 community-based organizations focused on reducing gun violence in 27 neighborhoods across Chicago. So behind me, you can see a map of where we're located in the city. Um, we started this in 2017 with eight partners working in nine communities, and uh, we've grown pretty rapidly over the last six years. So what we do is a combination. Our core services are street outreach, case management, victim services, and our community events are called Light in the Night, where we have events in our local communities three nights a week in the summer and once a month, fall, winter, spring. According to our data analysts, as of August of, uh, of this year, 12 of our top 20 CP4 communities were showing a 60% decrease in gun violence when compared to the same period last year. It's, it's also important to note that during Labor Day weekend this past year, uh, we had seven shootings that total weekend versus 18 the year before. So here's a quick video uh, to kind of give you a sense of how we got started. The Metropolitan Peace Initiatives started as a result of, you know, the backlash against war after the killing of Laquan McDonald. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just as simple as that. The city saw a spike of gun violence at that time, and the civic leaders here in town 
think were alarmed by it. And a few of the leaders called and said, hey, can we meet? And I said, well, why don't we just come on a Saturday to MFS and this whiteboard stuff. Mm-hmm. Rick saw that Metropolitan had a, a, a role to play in, in addressing gun violence. It would be the first time in the history of the city where two men of color are leading a program of this kind that look just like the kids that are being shot. Both care deeply about this issue and about our children and our young men and people. We had to start to build a team. That team ultimately evolved into what we call Metropolitan Peace Initiatives, which over time became its own division within Metropolitan Family Services that convene Communities Partner for Peace, that administers the Metropolitan Peace Academy, but then also provides some direct services for all of the CP4P partners, whether it's behavioral health, whether it's uh, workforce development, whether it's our Justice Corps, which is run by our Legal Aid Society. We just responded, as we always do, to the community's need. The community's saying, hey, uh, we need you engaged through our hyper-local partners that will continue to be our role. So allow me to introduce our panelists today. Uh, In the middle is uh, Jesus Salazar, a lifelong resident of Little Village. Uh, Jesus started his work at Cure Violence in 2011. He's a 2018 graduate of Metropolitan Peace Academy. Uh, Jesus works in our bilingual communities and was recently promoted to senior field manager for the Metropolitan Peace Academy this year, where he facilitates and teaches curricula aimed at helping other professionals become outreach workers. Closest to me is Angela Herlock, CEO of Claritian Associates, a proud CP4P partner. Claritian Associates is a community development corporation that is dedicated uh, over 30 years of working on local schools, churches, and other organizations in building up services and resources in low-income neighborhoods uh, on homelessness in Chicago, uh, South Shore, South Chicago, and South Daring neighborhoods. Uh, Community violence intervention uh, drives a lot of their work. And on the far end is Soledad McGrath, Executive Director and Research Professor at Northwestern University's Center for Neighborhood Engaged Research and Science, also known as CORNERS a university-based research center conducting cutting-edge research into the ways that neighborhood science can be used to understand and address gun violence and other pressing social issues. Thank you each for joining us today. All right. So uh, in you guys' own words, uh, tell us what CVI is. Anybody can start. How about you start, Jesus? Yeah, Yeah, sure. Um, For me, CVI is individuals who are invested in making a safer Chicago, right? Individuals who have been through the fire, right? Those individuals such as myself and, you know, my my colleagues, right, who share the same type of work. Um, CVI for me is, is making sure that our communities are better, right? Making sure that our communities are, um, you know, are safer, right, for for everyone. Um, so 
For me, that's what CVI work is. Take us through a day in the life of a, an outreach worker. Day in the life of an outreach worker. Uh, wow, it's, it's actually 24-7, right? Um, people reaching out to you on a daily basis, even on your days off, uh, you know, to, to, to really focus on building others up, right? Um, I like to personalize my story, right? Um, for me, me being an influence in my community, a positive one, a lot of people reach out to me for specifics, right? Um, individuals who might be looking for a job, individuals who might need diapers for their baby, mm-hmm. um, individuals who might need food in their fridge, right? Um, so, you know, being that pillar in my community, right, is, 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 is that, right? The, you know, that, that individual who can provide all those things for individuals and also uh, be that bridge that connects people to different resources, um, actually, I was sharing some of uh, the things that are happening here on my story on Snapchat, and a lot of the young guys from my neighborhood are like encouraging me, right? Because I encourage them. Um, so, being an outreach worker is is that encouraging individuals to be better. When I was growing up, I aspired to be, you know, one of those individuals who did bad in my neighborhood, right? So. I have to change that, right? I had to change that and focusing on, you know, bettering myself so that others can aspire to be like me, right? So that's what being an outreach worker is. So, Soledad, during your research, I think you've gotten to know a lot of research, a lot of outreach workers. Give us your perspective on what you've learned about outreach workers. Yeah, what Jesus shared is is so powerful because that's exactly what we see, and that's what's also so powerful about the coalition itself. Um, the work of an outreach worker is, 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 is so difficult. It's hard to put into words, and it, it, it's always hard for me. I tend to get emotional, but um, we, we recognize that our traditional first responders are putting themselves um, in, in dangerous situations. We recognize the trauma that, um, that they experience, and we don't often think more broadly as a community about um, our outreach workers and violence interventionists as first responders as well. And often, because they are so close to the community, they are in their community, in their neighborhoods, they often are first at the scene of of incidents of of gun violence. So they are having direct contact with not only um, victims, but the victims' families. And, um, and the levels of exposure to violence are truly astronomical. So we, we've had the privilege of working with many of the partners here that are part of the, the coalition on a really groundbreaking study called the Violence Intervention Worker Study in which we had the opportunity to um, survey all of the outreach workers um, about the experience of what it means to be an outreach worker. What does it mean to be, what does exposure to violence look like? What does it mean financially, economically? Um, and and the, the one that the one uh, uh, point that we tend to focus on is exposure to violence because it is um, it is so high. You know, seventy percent of individual of outreach workers are witnessing some kind of, of gunshot um, victimization 
just as part of their job. 20% are being shot as part of their job. So that requires us to be really thinking about the kinds of supports that that these professionals need in order to be able to do their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And Angela, um, I talked about, you know, outreach, case management, victim services. Talk about at the organizational level how all of those things fit together. Right. So at the organizational level, a lot of the organizations around the table, you know, we don't all just work on violence, right? Clarice Associates itself is a housing developer. And um, I was so tremendously proud of my organization and our board. Um, When we had a really, about 15 years ago, we had a really hard conversation. I had to talk to them about nobody wants to live in an apartment if their kids can't walk down the street. Mm If their kids can't, if they can't go to the store safely, if they can't experience their neighborhood, if all they're doing is sleeping in their neighborhood, they're not living in their neighborhood, then we have to become involved in how we attract, you know, we approach getting rid of this violence. And so that was our foray into saying, how can we as a housing developer, you know, be involved in violence reduction? And so being a part of this coalition as, a, as an organization that didn't start out in, in violence intervention, it helped us to build our capacity in order to understand the issues and under to understand that just like you can catch a cold, if you're prevalently around someone with um, you know, a virus, you, know, you might attract that virus. If you're constantly in an environment where there's violence going on, you might learn violent activity. But just like you can learn that violent activity, you can unlearn that violent activity because the individuals that are taking part in it who are not only uh, portraying the violence but also being victimized by the violence, they didn't drop, just drop out of the sky. They are our community members. And so just like they can be part, they've been part of the challenge, they can be part of the solution as well. But that capacity building was something that was so rich for us that being able to have a table where folks understood what our neighborhood was and what it wasn't and how we could work with each other to be able to you know, come up with solutions. Yeah. So, so that Corner's research illustrates how social relationships shape what happens across an entire community and uh, how the power of networks can be leveraged to improve health and safety uh, for more equitable neighborhoods. Explain how that works. Yeah, what Angela was just saying was music to my ears because um, at, at Corners we harness the, the, the power of network science to, um, to help make our communities you know, safer and um, enhance neighborhood well-being. And what that means for us is, is leveraging, bear with me, <laughs> social network analyses, which is a science that takes mathematical models and statistics to help us understand the connections between people and how those connections affect what we think, feel, and do. And those are our networks, right? It, you know, Angela talked about it in the context of a contagion, and we've seen this science used in multiple fields, like infectious diseases, uh, and, and to the, you know, helping, helping us understand who we, who we marry. Um, we apply that network science to, to help us understand gun violence and gun violence in Chicago and how that concentrates in these very small networks. Um, and, you know, our partners will say, because uh, you can visualize it, that it looks like a web. Because we're connecting individuals by by their arrest, by behavior that they're engaging in together. Um, And so you can see that. And if you are a part of a network of individuals that have experienced victimization, your risk of victimization, not surprisingly, shoots up dramatically. Mm -hmm. And so what 
While that science is something that we bring to the table, what's really critical is that we have to marry that with the expertise of the individuals who are doing the work on the ground, the Angela's and the Jesus's and all, so many of you that are here in this room. Our science is one piece, but together, that is what is, is really allowing us to better understand gun violence, better understand read how we can reach the, the young people who are at highest risk and really provide the comprehensive of services and the holistic services that you need in order to be able to to help individuals come out of these situations. So, Jesus, you've had a pretty long career in CVI, um, but probably in the last four years is when you've really been more exposed to data. Talk to us about, you know, what that sort of new language has been like for you and how it's helped you do your work. Yeah, um... Using data for us is, is very important, right? Um, deploying teams in specific areas, right, is one of the ways that we use data. Making sure that we're deploying teams in areas that we've seen increases in violence in, right? Um, making sure that we're having, uh, traditionally, we, we would, you know, Tuesday through Saturday, specific times, and then, uh, you know, because of data, we, we've noticed that there's, been spikes on specific days, and uh, we'll we'll deploy teams based on the data that we um, accumulate and 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 you know and process right. Um, so if a community is experiencing violence on Mondays and Sundays, right, um, we'll deploy teams on those days specifically, right. Uh, another thing is focusing on uh, hotspots, right, making sure that. Um, Individuals in those hotspots, groups in those in those hotspots, are being serviced as well, right? Mm-hmm. So making sure that you know uh, we're touching everybody who um, is in those areas, so that we're providing services for those individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, another another way is making sure that you know um, we're focusing on non-aggression agreements, right? Um, if we see that Group A and Group B have been or we establish a, a, a no slide policy, right? And they've been doing great, right? There's been no incidents, right? Um, we'll, we'll think about like coming to them with a peace agreement, right? Um, and the way that we do that is, you know, we, we track whether or not they're beefing with each other, right? So if they're in the green and you know everything is is peachy with them, right? Um, we'll 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 approach them and let them know, hey, you know, things have been smoothed over with your with your groups. How about a, a peace agreement for now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been successful in those things, right? Um, in Little Village, we had uh, an internal beef. Um, things were, were very sour at the time, right? Um, and things were, were not good. Um, and we actually had to sit with individuals, um, create a no-slide policy. And now we have a peace agreement with those individuals. Um, so... You know, data is very, very important in our Talk about anniversaries as well. Anniversaries as well. So um, we've talked about anniversaries, focus on on anniversaries. So anniversary deaths in our communities um, historically have, uh, on those days specifically, have been violent, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Individuals don't know how to process uh, conflict, right, or uh, grief. Uh, so those individuals um, that are experiencing that conflict and grief, you know, they they usually on days that an individual has passed because of a, you know, gun violence issue. Um, historically, we've seen that individuals come out on that day and 
unfortunately in our community retaliation is is one of the one of the things that we struggle with so making sure that we document anniversary deaths through our community so that when you know those dates are coming up we engage those groups right we take them out of the neighborhood we you know create events for them um and really focus on you know minimizing that retaliation right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's one of the biggest things that we really really do mm-hmm. So, Angela, tell us um, sort of over the course of your time in, in CVI, you know, what have you gotten better at and what's good? And then tell us any of the challenges that you still face. Yeah, I think one thing for us is about resiliency, uh, building resiliency in people mm-hmm. with our team and building resiliency in our organization. Because our organization over the last, just in the period of time of working with CP4B, has doubled in our, our budget. So our budget is about $6 million. $3 million of that is just our violence work and um, growth so fast um, that has growing pains. We understand that in a human being, an organization is no different. And so being able to be part of that collaborative have been, has helped us to be resilient and to grow with the pace of how we're growing. But the resiliency goes farther. It goes deeper into our team. Our team, which started out um, when we first started with CP4B, was five individuals in one neighborhood. Now it's three separate neighborhoods, and we have about 40 people. And so these are individuals who have had some kind of interaction out in the neighborhood, and they see what that, re- that action caused. Now they're coming back and using those same skill sets that they've had to create resiliency in our neighborhood. And there's nothing, I think, more uh, powerful, someone mentioned it earlier, I think might have been Soledad, about lived experience. When you've lived something, you understand how it works. You can come and tell someone there's a different way. That is a powerful message that... You know, I'm not able to necessarily bring, but my team is very, very able to to bring. But on the other side of that, some of them have never um, worked in official organizations before and things like that. And so all those soft skills about working and um, doing those things, that's about resiliency of a person. And in our country, it's very hard to be resilient once you've come out of the, the justice system. If you don't have support, that resiliency evades you. The, the quicker you run towards it, the quicker it runs away if you don't have a support system. And so as an organization, opening up how to build that support system and working with other organizations to build that support system has helped us to really grow in our resiliency. So when you think about um, Claritian Associates mm-hmm. and them doubling their budget and having 40 people now, like, you know, I think it's important to note that, you know, across the 27 communities, they're close to probably approximately 400 mm-hmm. people uh, doing this work, whether they're outreach worker, case manager, victim advocate. And so there's a real civilian infrastructure that has been built uh, for public safety in Chicago that's unique uh, in the country. Uh, nobody's doing it at the level that we're doing it uh, today, so that's worth noting. Um, so to that, um, obviously coming into this uh, from a research perspective, you're dealing with you know organizations and people who you know aren't familiar with research, so you had to come with a particular approach to us to with it. So talk about collaborative research with the community. Yeah. Um, one of our core pillars is what we called an engaged research approach. So when Vaughn said neighborhood science, that for, for us, that's the marrying of the, our data analytics with, with the um, knowledge and the lived experience that our partners have because that's, that's the power of the, of the potential partnership. And um, to be fair, 
um, it, it's it's a hard partnership, right? I mean, we we know that um, we are from an elite institution. Um, and elite institutions don't have a great reputation among community. Um, unfortunately, the research field has um, the reputation of being extractive, and so we are working really hard to, to change that narrative, to be true partners on the ground, and that means being alongside with our partners from study design to implementation. It is uh, not easy we have uh, really challenging conversations. We've been pushed, but I think it makes the science better. Um, it makes the research actionable and practical to the people who need it on the ground. Um, and they tell us. You know, I, I think from the early days of the partnership with CP4P, um, one of the things that the partners really pushed us to do was think more broadly about outcomes and what it, what success means. So yes, we are all following the 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 shooting and and non-fatal shooting arrest rates, the homicide rates. Those are critical numbers, and we should be following them. We should also be thinking about what are the positive outcomes that um, that occur in individuals' lives and in communities because of the work of, of of these interventionists, and and that's education, health, perceptions of health, perceptions of safety, um, housing, all of the things that we we typically don't think about from the research lens, and that's really, I think, pushed the partnership forward. Yeah. Jesus, um, you know, how has the Peace Academy, you know, impacted you both personally and professionally um, over the course of your career? Yeah. 2018, I remember being chosen to go to the Peace Academy after actually my mentor, the individual who influenced me in a positive way, and kind of was the point person that really changed my life. He, um, he couldn't make it, right? So I was his replacement. Um, it's kind of godsend, right? <laughs> um, but nonetheless, um, the first five weeks, I, I didn't buy into the idea. I was one of those individuals, like, what are you going to teach me about street outreach, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but after the fifth week, I was bought in completely. Um, I fell in love with the Peace Academy. I really focused on, you know, the topics that were being taught to us, right? Uh, We were being trained how to be professionals. We were being trained uh, these models and these tools uh, so that we can be more efficient in our communities, right? Um, One of the biggest things that I took away from the academy uh, for me was really being a space, a safe space, a space that was therapeutic, right? Um, So that I can really let go of who I was, right? Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like you know, you straddle the fence, right? You, you go into this work not necessarily bought in 100%. After the academy, I was totally bought in. Mm-hmm. I was really totally bought in because of the scientific terms and everything that we were learning and what I can offer my community specifically, right? Um, it really made a big difference in my life, right? Um, having the tools and knowing what to say, the right things to say with individuals and help people process things, right? Help people uh, get to where they need to go specifically, right? And if you don't have the tools, you feel mal-equipped, right? You don't, you don't feel sufficient in the work, right? So I think for me, you know, 
just focusing on everything that was being offered to me, taking it all in, positioning myself as a learner, right, was really the main thing that I took away from the academy. I fell in love with it so much. I, I, <laughs> I've been to every single cohort, mm-hmm. the case managers cohort, the street outreach cohort, our new victim services cohort. Um, and we have more things, you know, planned, but man, I fell in love with it. I really, really enjoy it. And I still facilitate. I have uh, a few lessons that I contributed to the, you know, to the curriculum. Um, so I just, man, I, I, without the Peace Academy, I really think that I don't know where I would be right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we did in our first cohort is we got our most experienced outreach workers and had them go through the curriculum first with the thought of two things. One, they would help us strengthen you know, the curriculum because they're the experts. That's what they do on a day-to-day basis. But also that they would become our facilitators and be the ones really teaching the work so that you know, folks like you know, Jesus can then come behind us and teach the next group. And that way, the folks with the most lived experience and that are closest to the work are doing the work and, you know, being able to work with corners to help us create the science behind the work and help them really understand that they have a real profession. It's not what, you know, some guys might call a lick of something they can do when they get out of jail and they, you know, just have this job of, you know, doing something easy. So, you know, he's definitely somebody we're proud of in our work for sure. Um, Angela, so tell us um, what are some things that we need or you need it from your vantage point to keep this work going? Yeah, it's greater resources because even though we have um, things in place, the need is so great. It's still hard to house people who are coming out of certain situations. It's still hard to get jobs, you know, get people to really say this individual deserves the opportunity to have a living, right, to live a different type of life. And so partnerships that allow us to be able to have housing, have uh, jobs, those types of things are still important for us to have. Um, And I want to add something to something you said about the Peace Academy. Um, Even before we were part of the initiative, Mm -hmm. um, you guys were nice enough to let us be part of the Academy. (laughs) We begged, pleaded, please let us come to the Academy. And so we have had every round, we have had somebody in the Academy even before we were part of the initiative. And those folks are the folks that are running our programs now, whether it be our CP4P programs, our youth programs, our safe passages programs, because all of it comes together when we're working with those who need housing, when we're working with those who need just critical life care things, it all comes together. And so we've been so grateful to have that kind of formal education to help form how we approach the work. I love it. So Corners just recently released a report on its latest findings on the work of CP4P. Um, What does the research tell us? Is the community violence intervention actually working? And uh, what have you learned about, uh, and yeah, is it working? So one of the things I want to emphasize is that CP4P is a coalition. Mm-hmm. And and so it's made up of organizations, this may be obvious, but it's made up of organizations that have their own unique flavor, style, their own agendas, the way that some are faith-based, they have their own um, identity. And so the the partnership was really about understanding how the co- what impact the coalition had Mm -hmm. together. Um, And that's really important because sometimes um, when we're talking about uh, CVI and whether it's working or not, we're comparing uh, programs like what Clarice and Associates does with something like a coalition, and that's 
it's apples to oranges. And so I just want to remind us that, that we're talking about a coalition. And one of the most important things that we have learned from CP4P and our, and our long partnership together has been that they have been effective at building a really strong foundation for violence prevention infrastructure. So when we talk about a civilian architecture, uh, non-punitive community-led strategies to address those at highest risk of gun violence interrupt gun violence and provide the holistic and comprehensive services that that individuals need from behavioral health to housing to legal services all of it it's because the coalition has has gone through the really hard work of trying to coordinate trying to develop standards among the partners while maintaining their unique identities um, and, and, and start to, to build that coordinated effort that allows um, in, you know, partnerships across neighborhoods because this moves, right? This is across the entire city. It's not just one neighborhood or, or the west side or the south side. It impacts all of, all of the communities, and so we really need to be working in this coordinated effort. So that is um, uh, a lesson that we have really learned, and we've learned a couple of others. One is that CP4P, the, as a coalition, is reaching the right people. So when we talk about the individuals who are at the highest risk of gun violence and victimization, CP4P, as a, co- as a coalition, is reaching them. So CP4P participants are three times at higher risk than individuals in their own neighborhoods and four times at higher risk across Chicago as a whole. So we are talking about astronomical levels of risk. Um, we, We also know that and, and this is also something that Jesus mentioned earlier, so, you know, just the compendium of work that, that in, is involved in outreach, but that violence prevention is more than interrupting an incidence of gun violence. That is critical, <laughs> that is primary, but it's not just stopping that. It's connecting individuals to life-saving services. And we saw this play out most clearly during the pandemic. When other institutions were forced to step back, this group had to step forward. And so they were providing, handing out PPE. They were providing diapers. They were providing all of the services that a community member might need in this really, really difficult time, let alone dealing with their own personal challenges of, being, of going through a pandemic, which we're, we're all still reeling from. So when we talk about outcomes and, and narratives, it's really important to understand that this work is more than stopping an incidence of gun violence. And third, you know, we are, research never keeps pace with the work that's happening on the ground, so sometimes my, our answers are unsatisfying given the urgency that we all feel um, as a city but we're encouraged by what we're seeing, both at the individual participant level and at the community level. So we see that across, across the coalition, at the individual participant level, we're seeing declines of 42% um, in 18 months after enrollment in CP4P of gun violence victimization. And a more modest but still a decline, 9% decline in arrests for violent crimes Um, 18 months following uh, enrollment in the CP4P program. Um, So so they're really critical lessons. Um, And, you know, we always want to know what more could we learn about about this work. And 
what we tried to understand in partnership with CP4P was what would the communities be like without CP4? Like if CP4P had not existed, what would that look like? And so we, we brought our expertise and have estimated that from 2017 to the end of 2021, CP4P, again, as a whole, um, has, has um, prevented 383 um, fatal or non-fatal shootings, 383 lives. That is important because it's it's not just those individual lives, but it's the network around them, mm-hmm. mothers, families, siblings, um, and, and and 605 arrests, prevented 605 arrests of, of um, violent, from violent crimes. So there's still a lot we're learning, um, and we hope to you know be able to continue the partnership to be able to be more definitive about what we're seeing. But we're encouraged by these results, and frankly, they, they mirror what we're seeing across other parts of, of the city and also across uh, through other programs and also across uh, the country as well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but we want to you know, open it up for uh, questions from the audience. Um, do we have any cards? Or go ahead. you want to grab those? So while we're doing that, we have some that came ahead of time. Um, so this is for you, Angela. How would you like to see other nonprofit service agencies support your work, especially those agencies that are not directly involved in violence prevention but serving the same individuals and working in the same communities? Yeah, I think it's about collective impact. Um, everyone can bring something to the table. We're going into you know November. Everybody understands Thanksgiving, right? Everybody's not bringing the whole meal. Everybody's bringing something to the table so that everyone can eat off of it. Um, it's the same theory in the neighborhood. We might be able to provide housing. There are people who can provide employment. There are folks who can provide legal services. There are folks who can just provide being able to sit down with someone and give them the soft skills to understand how to resolve conflict without violence. And so it's bringing in those partners that might not do direct um, work in violence intervention, but have something very needed that we, we need to be able to have access to and so, so that our folks can thrive and be resilient. And I think the, the other thing, something that um, Soledad mentioned, um, is about the teams and the collaboration. Um, each of the neighborhoods look slightly different. Chicago is a city of neighborhoods, 77 neighborhoods that are very distinct. Um, our neighborhood is a neighborhood that's very multicultural. Our affiliations that are Latino have blacks in them. Our affiliations that are black have Latinos in them. So that means for us that our team looks like everything. We were really excited because our team was one of the first teams that had both Latinos and blacks and women. Like, and so those are all the, the things that we need because um, I laugh with uh, some of our staff. They remind me that sometimes women can get men to do things that men can't get th- men to do. <laughs> right? So it's important to have all of those different, you know, um, involvements, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah, that's what I would share. I love it. I love it. So here's a question from the audience. Do you see a move towards uh, helping youth with PTSD from gun violence? My experience has made this one of my top priorities to get mental health to our kids. And this is someone from the Chicago Police Department. Jesus, I thought you answer that question. Sure. Um, one of the things that we provide, um, you know, as a 
as um, in, in the Peace Academy and also our community partners is CBT, right? Um, so focusing on, you know, um, those therapies for individuals who have suffered, you know, from gun violence, right? Maybe they suffer from losing someone close to them to experiencing gun violence, gun violence themselves. Processing that and making sure that, you know, you're, you're resolving those, those issues, right? Um, an issue can be anything from, you know, not being able to leave your house after, you know, experiencing violence to, you know, ex, you know, exposing others to violence based on your exposure to violence, right? So we all know that hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to, we have to promote healing in our communities, right? Uh, reaching out to the right individuals to offer those services. Like you're dealing with something, you know, you have a lot of pain in you. I know you lost your brother, right? I know you lost your sister. Putting that on somebody else is not the answer, right? Uh, you don't want anybody else going through what you're going through. Like, let's talk about that, right? Let's let's see what we can do so that you can resolve some of those issues. Like, I'm a I'm a I'm a big believer in forgiveness, right? And um, not not many people in our community love to forgive, right? So. Um, you know, you have, sometimes you have to influence forgiveness in people, right? And, and, and tell them, like, you really need to let that go. Uh, where are you going to be in the next five years, the next ten years, right? If you retaliate or if you resolve your issues with, you know, with gun violence, like, you're, 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 you're either going to be in jail or dead, right? So those are your options, right? Um, or another option can be you resolve your issues, right? Um, so I think... You know, those are some of the ways that we can put it out there to our community so that, you know, PTSD is a big thing in our community. Right. So we really have to focus on healing our communities. So our behavioral health team um, created what we call our TIC trainings, the trauma informed care training. It's a buzzword that we hear a lot um, today, but I, I commend. Um, you know, our team for putting into the language that, you know, our outreach workers in our community can understand and really operationalizing what it really means. And I think part of the answer to, you know, what you guys are talking about is also just ongoing support Um, because Mm -hmm. getting over death, you know, like there's, you know, we may have a natural death and you may not ever get get over it, but I like to talk about successful coping um, with loss. And so I think that's what we're really... um, You know, trying to achieve. Um, Can I add yeah, one? Yeah, more absolutely. I've never been known for not talking, but um, <laughs> all good. That's perfect. Makes it easy. But I just want to use an example of a story that that happened this uh, summer, and this isn't unique. But I'm I'm very proud of my team for what what happened. So we have a summer program. This summer we had 75 kids in our building. Um, 20 of them were 14 and 15 year olds. 50 of them were 16 to 18. Um, almost halfway through our six week program. Two of our 14, 15-year-olds were coming to, to the, the program. They weren't in the building. They were two blocks away from the building, leaving their home. Someone jumped out of bushes and sprayed, um, shooting one of our, grazing one of our 14-year-olds. They, of course, did not show up that day for, um, for the, the session. And, you know, the word spread like wildfire. The very next day, my team got together and they walked the kids to and from because a lot of our kids are from our neighborhood yeah. and they needed to come because they wanted to make money 
a lot of them weren't so phased because they were like, oh, there's always shootings in the neighborhood. But it was the most amazing sight to see our team come pick them up and make sure they got home safely. That's part of that PTSD Mm -hmm. that we're talking about, helping them to cope and understand that somebody cares that you have to learn how to walk through a neighborhood where you may get shot. Like that's on the ground operationalizing, taking what you know and being part of the solution. And I just wanted to share that. Oh, that's a great, great story. All right. So um, if CVI is a viable public safety strategy, does it make sense for the public sector to increase its CVI investment? Uh, how about you? Yes. That one too. <laughs> Next question. That's, that's pretty easy. Yeah, and, and I would say I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, when we got started, um, FY18, the state of Illinois was sort of the primary uh, funder of CVI work at the time. And um, in 2020, the city got involved. And I believe later in 2020, the county got involved. So the city, county, and state are much more involved uh, in this work now. When we started at CP4P, it was 100% uh, you know, privately funded through um, PSPC, the Partnership for Safe and Peaceful Communities. And today, we're probably 90% uh, publicly funded and about mm-hmm. 10% uh, philanthropy. So we're definitely... Vaughn, can I just yeah, add something absolutely. to that? Mm-hmm. I think that the yes, yes, mm-hmm. but that's also why it's so important that we think differently about outcomes mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and how we talk about the work and and the and the narrative. It doesn't it doesn't mean that the issue isn't still urgent, and we have to do have to think about both short term and long term solutions. But we have to, I think, have a different um, respect and understanding for the work. In, in order to to be able to make the case to the public sector and others that this is really something that you have to support in the long run and, and reset expectations. Yeah, I love it. Um, how are your programs helping families escape poverty? Because I believe poverty plays a role in violence. Do you believe poverty and violence are linked? Uh, is the federal government doing enough? Anyone want to take that? That's a big question. Yeah. Um, I'll take this part of it uh, about escaping poverty. So one thing that as we've grown as a coalition to understand is that if we have people that are out on the street and they're really helping decrease the violence um, and decrease the things that create violence, then we need to make sure that they're compensated in a way that doesn't lure them back to the streets. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I think this coalition has worked very hard is making sure that our team have the things that jobs have. You know, whether that's benefits, whether that's a living wage, whether that's opportunities at growth, those types of things. I believe that trajectory to help people see how they're just not, you know, coming out and I, I don't remember the phrase you use, but kind of like getting just some kind of job, volunteer oh, job. Yeah. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. this is an actual profession. Mm-hmm. You're actually going to school, getting certified, learning these different um, um, tactics and different uh, ways to be able to really affect your community. And by this professionalism, this is what helps grow and keeps people moving out of poverty. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really critical. 
Yeah, so workforce development is one of the uh, you know major issue, uh, major initiatives within CBI. So, in addition to what uh, Angela is talking about, you know, to start there with our staff, when we started in in 2018 or FY18. We made the minimum salary for our outreach worker thirty six thousand. I think before that it was about twenty eight thousand, and then starting FY twenty four, you know, the minimum salary is forty five thousand dollars. So there's that. There's benefits, and then we're all working on all of our organizations providing uh, life insurance for our, our partners. But from a workforce perspective, uh, we have. Um, we facilitate GED attainment. We have, a, you know, job readiness uh, services. We have a partnership with city colleges where we um, pay a stipend to get, you know, a manufacturing credential. Um, I think it's important to point out that Chicago Cred uh, does a lot of work um, in workforce and had a lot of programs around, around that, and, and so does uh, Ready Chicago as well. So within the CBI infrastructure, you know, part of what we talked about from the very beginning is not enough to stop a shooting or killing or mediate a conflict. We have to put people on a path to a dignified life, have them wake up every day with some purpose for themselves and also be able to take care of their family. So we agree that there's a link between uh, not only poverty and violence, but poverty. You insert access to guns and trauma then you have a lot of violence. So we, we agree with that 100%. Um, let's see if we can get another one in here. Um, so what kinds of things do you do to retain outreach workers? Is retention an issue for you? Um, retention can be an issue, but I have to say that out of our team, we have a lot of our team members that have been with us since the start. Um, sometimes retention is you know, being able to keep them focused on moving forward, and not um, succumbing to just life issues, right? Just the things that, you know, some of us might find easier to be resilient from, some don't find easy to be resilient from. So helping them stay on that path, I think also, again, all those wraparound um, opportunities, those benefits, those things like that. Over the last um, two years, we've actually lost two outreach workers because they passed away. And it wasn't to gun violence or anything like that. It was natural causes. This is the first time we were able to offer their families life insurance. We don't think about that. You don't sit around and think about what life insurance means to someone. But when you've lost that person who is the, the um, foundation of your family financially, when you're able to go to a family and say, we have a year for us, it was a year's worth of salary for your family to help you to be resilient, that means the world. And that keeps the, that family coming back, even without that foundational person, coming back to us to make sure that they remain resilient. And so I think that that's the thing that retains our workers. They see themselves going up the ladder. They see themselves improving in life. They see their families in a whole different life and a whole different um, trajectory than they've ever seen before. And I think those are the things that help our teams stick together and stay together. Um, how has the migrant, uh, migrant and refugee crisis impacted CP4's work? Um, are we being asked to do more? Um, Jesus, can you answer that? Oh, that's a tough that's question. That's a tough one, yeah, <laughs> I, know, I know. It really is. Um, um, wow, where to start, right? Um, I don't think it's impacted us in a negative way. I think it's impacted in a positive way. Uh, Providing services for everybody is, is something that we really focus on and make priority, right? Um, so making sure that, you know, we're, we're providing educational 
um, tools for those individuals as well, right? Like, these are the things that are normal in our community. These are the mm-hmm. things that the community struggles with and, you know, letting them know not to get involved with those specifics, right? Um, I know for me, um, I... Uh, being from Little Village and experiencing, you know, the loss of our local um, field house, right, Petrosky Park, um, and providing that housing for those individuals, right, for those migrants, um, but also making sure that safety is created around that area. Uh, so making sure we're talking to the to the guys in the neighborhood and letting them know, hey, you know, these things are changing. These things are coming to our community. Um, let's try to be supportive. Um, let's try not to, you know, victimize specific groups, right, based on, you know, um, the issue. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it's, it's challenging. But we're figuring out ways to um, maybe think about what's going to happen in the next couple years, right? I was talking to somebody from the city, Elvis, as a matter of fact, figuring out ways how we can possibly put out some public ed material for these individuals, right, so that they don't, again, succumb to the things that are uh, normal in our communities, right? Uh, But nonetheless, um, you know, I think we've suffered with issues of, you know, tattoos, right? Um, Individuals have... Um, come to our community not knowing necessarily, you know, the challenges that our community faces and let them know, hey, like, you want to maybe cover that up or, mm-hmm. you know, don't wear those colors specifically in our community um, and making sure we provide safety for everyone. Okay. All right. Well, that concludes our discussion today. I'd like to thank each of our panelists for joining us today and uh, let's give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Vaughn Bryant, for moderating such a great discussion, and Rick Estrada for your partnership in, in creating all of this. Um, Soledad, your, your ability to understand the, the data and connect it to real life experience and, and, and show actual lives that are being saved mm-hmm. is uh, makes it very real. So thank you for your, your, your part in this. Um, Jesus, thank God you your mentor couldn't show up back in 2018, <laughs> right? Because you said you're better off. Or you, or, or you, what would you say? You, you, you weren't sure where you'd be without this. I can tell you that I think as a city, we are better because of what you've been able to do. So thank you for, for all of that. And, and Angela said it so perfectly. Take what you know and be part of the solution. Become part of the solution. You've done that. You're all doing that. Um, thank you, Angela, for all that you've done to connect all those dots and, and, and make things a little bit better. Um, all... Oh yes. Uh, sure. I, I usually we don't al- usually allow interruptions, but there are flowers involved. So. Huh? I would just like to say, we just appreciate the City of Club of Chicago for hosting this beautiful meeting today with the Metropolitan Peace Initiatives. All of you have been so informative, and you've just inspired all of us. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. And, and if, you're, if you're not able to hear, she was thanking everyone that's on the panel in the City Club for this and on behalf of the Chicago Authority and their families, that their Chicago, or Chicago Housing Authority family. So we would like to present these flowers to Angela So well deserved.
Thank you. Chair Herlock, kudos to you for this remarkable achievement. Your accomplishments fill our hearts with joy. Go, go, go. <laughs> go, go, go. Keep going. That was so, so thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Many years ago, I was a kindergarten teacher, so this is my day. <laughs> Dr. Mildred Harris, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> One of, one of Chicago's finest civic leaders. Thank you so much. That was so nice. Really, we'd love to have you all back. To encourage you to come back, we're going to offer you each a, a one-year membership, complimentary, so we, we hope you'll come back and share some of this continued progress and, and all the good that you're doing. Thank you again. Um, enjoy the snow. I think it just stopped. Um, and uh, I hope that everybody has a, a very safe and happy Halloween and that we see you back at City Club soon. Thank you.